This is Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. Shine On is a weekly presentation with guests, ideas, information, and fun designed to improve your life from 100.7 WHUD. Hi, it's Casey. Let us shine on today with dog lovers. New York Times bestselling author Alexandra Horowitz joins us to talk about her new book, Being a Dog, Following the Dog into a World of Smell great stories like this. There was a dog named Tucker, for instance, who can track um, where orcas are in Puget Sound by the scent of their scat, you know, up to a mile away in the water from a boat. So that's kind of amazing to me. Yes, a dog tracking an orca from a boat is pretty amazing to me, too. Stay tuned for that. And... Coming up, some dates to note. Sunday, November 5th, we have a Shine On Luncheon at the Organic Teaching Kitchen in Croton. Come for a little Reiki and inspiration. On November 8th, we have an evening of wellness in Cold Spring. And then November 18th, a whole lot of inspiration at Mariondale and Ossining when I present my live show, Everything I Need to Know I Learned on the Radio, maybe for the last time. I have a new show that starts in the spring, so come on. Have a laugh or two. You can always get details at Casey, co. And ladies, please join my Facebook group. It's called A Circle of Women. Now, if you are new to the show, welcome. We've been doing Shine On, the health and happiness show, since spring of 2009. And you can and should subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or SoundCloud. Now, what can today's celebrities learn from the Grateful Dead? A lot, according to documentary filmmaker Amir Barlev, the man who took on the challenge of telling the tale of one of the most popular bands in rock history. Why? I think some people who were involved in this were interested because it had never been done. For me, uh, that was part of the challenge, but I have to say that, you know, these films take so long to make, even, even if they're less uh, overtly challenging than uh, the Grateful Dead documentary, that you, you end up having to kind of tell yourself, well, why do I think this story is interesting right now? Why would I bring it up at a dinner party or something like that? Um, and, and, and so, you know, just saying, well, there's never been a Grateful Dead documentary and it's their 50th anniversary, which is actually when we initially started. We didn't make that deadline. Um, is it, not sufficient. You have to find that the story is kind of interesting for right now. And I have to say, I think the example of the Grateful Dead and the example of Jerry Garcia are vital right now. I don't think it's ancient history. I think the way that they conducted themselves, the the way they struggled with celebrity and didn't want to kind of hold themselves up above other people and felt like they could have a, a kind of a more authentic relationship with their audience if they were partners is something that I think our culture is lacking today. So, you know, it's a long-winded answer, but that's that, those are the kind of reasons why I was gravitating towards this story, not so much that, you know, I'm fascinated by the 1960s or anything like that, but that I really like, as a parent, want my kids to know that people can act this way with one another and not the way we do these days. We do politically and uh, culturally. Now, how do you get that point across that this is a vital story to tell today because this is what's lacking today? How do you get that yeah. across without yeah, saying Yeah, I mean, you it? don't do it didactically. Right, exactly. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I might say it to you, but it's not its not overtly said in the film. That would be, you know, kind of silly. The fun thing about this story is that, you know, there are, it's baked right into it. You know, the, the Grateful Dead gave away their music for free. People said they were crazy and, they, you know, that they'd never great, uh, grow a fan base that way um, or make money or be able to feed their family. Um, they treated their, their roadies and their organization like equals as a collective. 
I'd be lying if I said that always worked. The roadies were infamously anarchic, and their organization was chaotic. And, you know, it's one of the reasons it took 14 years for this film to get made, is they don't make decisions easily or quickly. But there's that old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Well, the Grateful Dead didn't move very fast because they moved in a big, great heap of people, uh, but they are still, we're still talking about them right now. They have more longevity in the cultural imagination than many of the bands that have that kind of astronomical rise and fit the uh, sort of celebrity bill better. Sorry about the right. sound here on no, the street of New York. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> that adds yeah. a little ambiance. Yeah, right. Okay. So let me ask you this. Dead fans are just sticklers for detail because, you know, they taped most of the shows and they've memorized yeah. the dates of the concerts. Did you right. feel any, I'm sure you did feel like some, a little intimidation to get the story sure. straight? Well, I am a dead fan, you know, I put the pressure on myself, you know, um, but I, I, I have to say that I think the film, the, the, the reviews that I've been most excited about haven't been the reviews from my fellow fans who are excited by it, but rather people who say they don't like this band or they didn't like this band, they didn't know there was anything interesting about it. And the film succeeds as a piece of storytelling, which you don't have to be a fan to, to enjoy. That, that we keep hearing, you know, and that's really rewarding to me because I, I didn't want it to be a film for fans. I wanted to make new fans and also just because I think this is, this is a really interesting story. I mean, as I mentioned, you have in the example of Jerry, a, a guy who really um, didn't want to be put on a pedestal. And that made people admire him even more and put him on an even higher pedestal. So he struggled with that. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a powerful and telling story for our time. And so I think it's working whether or not you like the music. Of course, yes, there is a but if you are a fan, you know, I've I've mined the uh, their archive and found a bunch of stuff um, that, you know, blew my mind. <laughs> and uh, including like the, the, the kind of the carcasses of the documentary filmmakers that came before me. Uh, there's some amazing, you know, Grateful Dead never were very comfortable being filmed and didn't love the idea of a documentary. So way back in the late 60s, early 70s, when documentary crews began to follow them around, Grateful Dead had a way of dealing with this, which involved uh, slipping something into their drink so that they would become more participants, you know, rather than observers. And that is some of the most incredible footage. I I mean, I'll just say, I'll go out on a limb and say, I I don't know that there's better rock and roll documentary footage than some of the stuff we have where Jerry Garcia is basically babysitting the, the camera crew in a small trailer at a at a festival in 1970 because they've been dosed and um you know and and it's funny because you know for decades now people have turned to jerry garcia figuratively you know like if you're having a hard trip you know put on the grateful dead jerry will take care of you Mm -hmm. you know but they don't mean literally but this is this is like literally jerry's taking taking care of you you know because he's he's taking care of the cameraman so in a way he's looking right at you you know like because you're behind the camera and it's funny because he He's high on acid, too, and it's in a strange way, you get the sense that he kind of knows he's talking both to the cameraman and to the future, you know, (laughs) to us. 
pretty it's pretty intense. And you yeah. uncovered this film. Yes, yeah. Uh, and we uncovered a bunch of other stuff too. You know, there's there's a love story. Uh he had a girlfriend um and before the Grateful Dead even existed who he lost touch with and they didn't see each other for 28 years. And then they reconnected, you know, she went on to have her life and he went on to become a big star and this is 1991 they reconnect after almost 30 years and um she recorded the conversation. She, she kind of made her way in there to do an article for a Buddhist quarterly. And in the course of this one hour that they're talking, hear all this, they fall back in love. And Jerry professes his love to her. And it's very awkward, but very powerful and emotional. And, and, and also, you know, just the notion of like, almost in this Charles Dickens way, him saying, you know, her saying, well, so what is your life like? You know, I mean, I, are you happy? And, you know, he's, he's actually not totally satisfied. And he kind of wishes that he had had a with her and mm-hmm. tells her so. We're talking yeah. with Amir Barlev, the uh, documentary filmmaker, his, his latest film about the Grateful Dead Long Strange yeah. Trip. Let me ask you this, and this is at a crazy left field land. Uh, did you ever feel at any moment of this journey that Jerry was on it with you? That Jerry was with me? Hmm. Well, I feel Jerry's with me, you know, daily because I listen to his music. And I mean, you know, I, I, I tend to not believe in supernatural stuff, you know, so it's like I'm a pretty scientific materialist worldview kind of guy. But, you know, I, I actually think that art is a, a way of cheating time, um, cheating death. In fact, I think it's actually the only way of cheating death, you know. And so uh, and, and, and it's funny, it's actually not so far out of left field, Casey, because that's a part of the film. You know, Jerry, um, Jerry's dad died almost in front of him when he was five years old. He drowned on a fishing trip. And Garcia says, you know, that this incredibly important moment happened in his life a year after that that set him on his course. And it's funny, the, the, the incredibly powerful epiphany came from watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm. That's truly out of left field, you know, and uh, and he says it, it, the reason for that is, you know, my dad had just died, he says, and I was confronted with a dead thing brought back to life, and it scared the heck out of me, and I decided to try to make, to tr- to try to overcome that fear and make it a part of me. So in a way, it's a long-winded way of saying Jerry was always asking himself about mortality, you know? I mean, you can imagine if you lose your, your father at a young age, you're, you're curious about how, how to make things not go away. And I think he decided that digging up corpses and electrifying them was not the way to make things last forever, to cheat death. Um, but the, in the way living in the moment was, you know? So that's one of the reasons why he didn't want to, a culture built around the Grateful Dead and a, and a kind of a, a legacy and stuff. He was really disinterested in that kind of stuff, and he actually was suspicious of that kind of stuff. So you're asking, like, do, do I feel that Jerry's kicking around? Yeah, I think he is in his art. Yeah. And I think that's a very real way, in some ways more real than other ways people try to live forever, you know? And uh, so, yeah. I see the T-shirt, Amir. <laughs> art yeah. cheats death. Yeah, right. Art cheats death. <laughs> I right. like it. I like it yeah, very much. Right. All right. Thank yeah. you for that. Back to a, a more middle of the road question. What makes a good documentary? Because I think I watched a terrible one last night. What do you say? Yeah, makes it's a good not one? uncommon, you know, not to 
you know, throw my fellow documentarians under the bus, but I, I, I have to say most music documentaries don't interest me at all because I love music and I don't feel that the film is musical, you know, and that's one of the things we tried to do is, is actually make the, the, the filmmaking feel musical. And we did that through ed- the way we edited and, and, uh, and, you know, a couple other different techniques. But, you know, and I don't like when a music documentary will, you know, like usher in a contemporary musician mm-hmm. to tell you how important that musician is supposed to be. So, like, you know, like, like if we had, like, you know, uh, oh, Will I, know. I Am Just or somebody, you, you know, like, oh, I remember the first time I heard yeah. Casey Jones. I think that's BS. It'd be like if I said, oh, oh you know, I, I know this really funny guy. He's really funny. You know, you mm-hmm. got to, like, make people laugh if you want to talk about humor. Right. Make people feel turned on if you want to talk about sex. And make people feel music, you know. Be musical if you want to talk about music. And uh, instead of just asking people to take your word for it. And uh, so that's that's one, th- you know, that's one thing we try and do uh, in this film. You know, I think also what else makes a good documentary? I mean, yeah, I don't know. That pretty much covers it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, think I could go on. Good. You don't want a lesson in documentary filmmaking. Uh, no. yeah. <laughs> but, but if yeah. I want one, I'm coming to you. Um, well, thanks a lot. <laughs> and finally, once you make a documentary, how do you get it to the public? It's not like it goes right in oh, all the theaters. There's two answers to your question. Or I should say, I, I made things especially hard for myself in the regard you're asking about because I made a four-hour film. Wow. And uh, so, you know, it's hard to get people into the movie theater to see a documentary, period. When you, when you have a four-hour film, it's doubly hard because, you know, the babysitting costs start skyrocketing mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, but we actually, like, broke a bunch of box office records when this was in theaters initially. It was in June. And then it, and then it migrated over to Amazon. And the film can be seen, uh, it's streaming on Amazon right now. Now, yeah. Amazon, forgive me, I should know this, Amazon and Netflix, are they two separate universes? Will I ever find you on Netflix? <laughs> No, you won't. It's not. It's a. It's a very reasonable question, and it's kind of an unreasonable answer. But no, they are two separate universes. They're in hot competition with one another, and you know you have to have Amazon Prime, which I think you can get free for thirty days with your free trial, whatever. Here I am shilling for Jeff Bezos, <laughs> but uh, you know, so you know, you'll never see this film on Netflix. Or actually, sorry, I should mention. I'm so glad you asked that. If you live in New York City, it's coming back. Uh, it'll be in theaters at Village East November 3rd through 9th November 3rd through 9th so you can come back and see it in the theaters early November in a couple weeks fabulous All right. thanks and and finally because you don't back down from a challenge what are (laughs) you working on now I'm kind of a one trick pony in a way I'm interested in there's a pretty interesting story about LSD that I found Ah. So, you know, I'm not straying too far from the story I just made. But, you know, I'm kind of down the rabbit hole, and I might as well just keep going. Right, right. And, you know, I've always <laughs> found one good thing usually leads to another good thing. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's that's right. Amir Bar-Lev, Long Strange Trip is the four-hour Grateful Dead documentary. Find it on Amazon Prime. We're back next with Wet Dog Noses. Have alcohol or drug dependence made your life or the life of someone you love unmanageable? For more than 100 years, St. Christopher's Inn has been the place where men in crisis find hope. Located in Garrison, New York, St. Christopher's Inn is a residential shelter and substance abuse treatment center where no man is turned away because of race, religion, or ability to pay. If you or someone you know needs to find a way out of addiction, call us at 800 4 or visit our website at stchristophersinn.org. Hi, it's Casey. Pack leader to a house full of dogs and a cat. 
Follow them on Lucky Dogs Ranch on Facebook. Alexandra Horowitz runs the Dog Cognition Laboratory, where she teaches at Barnard College, and she lives with her pets in New York City. Being a Dog is her new New York Times bestseller, now out in paperback, and we are nose-to-nose because... The dog's nose. You know, I study dog behavior and cognition. I'm interested in what it's like to be a dog, basically, what it's like to be a non-human animal. So if you're interested in that, you have to follow the nose. You have to understand what it's like to be an olfactory creature. And they are olfactory creatures, that is for sure. You want a dog's attention, just pull out a piece of roast beef. But, (laughs) right? What are, like, your top three interesting tidbits that you take away from the book? In the process of studying dogs, I I did two things. I watched dogs, I observed dogs, and I was amazed the degree to which we haven't really come close to establishing what their limitations are in terms of their abilities to detect things, for instance, by smell. Um, I think we're constrained more by our imagination than by their ability. So there was a dog named Tucker, for instance, who can track um, where orcas are in Puget Sound by the scent of their scat, you know, up to a mile away in the water from a boat. So that's kind of amazing to me. The other half of the book was really trying to become a better smeller myself so I could kind of appreciate what it's like to see the world through scents. And I was impressed how much better I got by smelling. In other words, all one has to do really is practice and bring attention to the things that you're smelling and you get considerably better and appreciate the richness of the world around us in a way that might surprise you. So do you think it's strictly smell when that dog is is sensing the animal under the water, the mammal under the water? Or do you think there's some, you know, other, other thing going on? Or is it all nose? Well, I do think that the dog can use their senses together much in the way that we do. So there, yeah, definitely would be sensing other things, but the nose is the leading sense, I would say. So the way that we might kind of hear something, but then bring our eyes to look at it, and that's when we really see what it is, or identify what it is. For the dog uses a nose the way we use our eyes, but absolutely they work in combination. But I don't think there's anything extrasensory mm-hmm. about the dog's abilities. I think it's just that we underestimate what their actual senses can do. You know, it's hard to imagine ourselves out of our own heads right. and perceptual abilities into someone else's. So the dogs use their nose the way we use our eyes, and I I know that's true because in my pack I do have a deaf blind dog. But when it's lunchtime, mm. she comes a running, you know? When the food goes Absolutely. in the bowl, she can smell it. No matter where she is, that nose is still working. One thing that I took away from your book that I found fascinating, because I, I have a pack of dogs, and I think I know a lot about dogs until I read your books, and then I'm like, I know nothing about dogs. That mm. when dogs cover up, you know, they'll 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 make a pee in the yard and or mm-hmm. wherever, and then they cover it up with their paws. Mm-hmm. I always thought they mm-hmm. were covering up the smell. Maybe, you know, in my mind, I said, oh, they're right. covering up the smell so predators can't find them. But that's not what's happening at all, is it? Right, right. And it's an interesting example of the ways that, you know, just a lot of ways that we look in dogs at dogs and understand what they're doing. There's another way to look at it. And sometimes that other way has more evolutionary logic to it. Um, and in this case, that's true. It looks like they're covering up if they scratch after they um, relieve themselves. But more likely, based on what other animals do, it's that they're actually adding more scent and sign 
to the area. So by rubbing their paws against the ground, they're actually releasing more odor. So that turns out to be like an arrow, which is pointing, like saying, hey, everybody, like there's something I've left over there that you might want to investigate. Wow. So it becomes a much bigger sign than before. And it's not truly covered up. If we look at it, they're doing actually a a pretty uh, inadequate job of covering. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's more about pointing an arrow. It's, and that's unbelievable. So so other dogs can smell, what, their territory or their, I don't know what? The type of information and smell, we, you know, it is hard for science to specifically answer that, but it looks like there's information about the identity of the dog. In other words, who is that? Mm-hmm. Just the way you might know, somebody might know the smell of their partner or their parents or their children, like that they have different smells. That's the urine of a dog will have a different smell. And so their identity information, there's information about what they ate, probably. There's information about their health. There'd be information about their sex. You know, dogs don't look underneath each other to see what sex that other dog is. They know what sex the other dog is, right? It has a smell. Mm -hmm. It smells different. Who knows what other information might be in there? Certainly things like time. How long ago were they there? That kind of information is in scent. So their smell world is much richer than, you know, is there food or is there not food, which is sort of how we are tend to treat dogs like they just identify they'll just notice where food is but what if we reimagine it like they smell you they recognize you as an individual by your smell so they're actually recognizing objects and people and other dogs by smell wow we're talking to alexandra horowitz the new york times best-selling author of inside a dog so this is being a dog so here's what reading your book taught me that dogs in my neighborhood know each other having never met. Right. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, the smell of somebody passing by, whether they mark a signpost or um, a fire hydrant or not, is in the air. So dogs will know about other dogs or people who pass by, even if they never run into them, because their scent is left for a while after they've passed. I just find that fascinating. (laughs) It's interesting to me, right? And But of course, we know that at some level, for any normal smeller, you know that people have, you know, a scent is left in, in their clothes, for instance. Mm-hmm. So even if the person, you haven't seen them for two years, but there's a shirt that they left at your house, that's a trace of them at some level. Um, and so that's the type of trace which dogs sort of just more regularly experience on a daily level as opposed to on a periodic level. Right. When I go away for a long time, a couple of days or whatever, I generally, like, leave my pajamas around the house where the dogs are. Do you think that it makes them Great. feel comfortable or, you know, drives them crazy? I don't know. Oh, I think it's useful, right? I think usually when dogs are, um, you know, getting into things or eating something, if they're, you know, chewing on your clothes or something, it's probably because they like to be around your scent. And mm-hmm. so leaving something for them it would be a comfort. I also happen to think that, that probably on a daily level, they can even perceive if the scent of you has um, gone down over time. So, mm-hmm. like, of course... The room would smell most like me when I'm in it, right? But then when I leave, it still smells a little bit like me. And then when I'm gone 10 hours, the scent has sort of dropped to the floor and it, and it would smell less like me. So I think that dogs might use that degrading kind of quantity of smell to a little bit tell the passage of time, like how long have you been gone? 
So, so if you're oh really gonna, you really want to keep the dogs ramped up, maybe you put like have somebody put a new T-shirt or something in with them every day. Right. <laughs> That's been filled up so that it's like this new presence of you wow yeah that's another thought like they pretty much can tell time by how strong a scent is or how weak a scent is that's right there is information about time in smell um a strong odor is newer and a, a weaker odor represents the past basically so you know a dog who goes outside might sniff in the air and be able to tell that somebody's about to come around the corner who they recognize because their smell precedes them and they might also sniff on the ground to be able to tell who passed by already because their smell has has remained and is now on the sidewalk. Right. And I have a tendency to stare at my dog's nose because watching their nose, because it moves. And it's like watching their, cool? their little brain. You know, you can tell something's going on in there because that nose is moving. And you know what's, what, you, what your books teach me is we look at a dog's life as, oh, that's easy. It's a dog's life. They, you know, they get played with, they get mm-hmm. fed. But their life is really complex. Yeah, and I think sometimes we aren't really looking at them on their terms and seeing what it would be like to be that animal, right? We just see them as things are taken care of for them and we love them a lot and that's it. But their world is just different than ours. You know, they aren't little humans. And I, I find that infinitely fascinating. Yes, yes. We don't, we, that's why we have you because you, you look at dogs as, <laughs> you know, in that different way. That's fantastic. Um, two things I must ask before I let you go and I thank you so much for this book and for all of the, all of the work you've done. One is who's in your pack at this moment in your doggy pack? We live with Upton, who is a big, goofy, mixed breed. Uh, he's about nine. And Finnegan, who is like my professional dog. He's just such a cooperative, attentive, sweet, loud bish mix, who is about 10. Beautiful. And where can people go for more information about all you do? Oh, yeah, great. Well, my lab, I have a research lab at Barnard College where I teach, um, which is at findable at dogcognition.com. And if you go to alexandrahorowitz.net, you can find out information about all my books. Thank you so much. And I hate to ask this question, but I'm gonna. Are you working on another dog Hmm. book? Oh, there are almost always a dog. Yes, I am. About the relationship between dogs and, and people. Okay. I'll be first online to buy it. Thank you so much for your time. Have a beautiful Thanks, day. Okay, bye-bye. You as well. Bye-bye. Alexandra Horowitz, Being a Dog, now out in paperback. Follow my pack on Facebook at Lucky Dogs Ranch and visit kcasey.co to see what's coming up. November 5th, a Nourish Your Chakras lunch and learn in Croton. November 8th, an evening of wellness in Cold Spring. And on the 18th, an hour of inspiration in Ossining. Please subscribe to the Shine On podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And now our thought for the day. From Sigmund Freud, dogs love their friends and bite their enemies, quite unlike people who are incapable of pure love and always have to mix love and hate. Have a great week. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. The content of Shine On, the health and happiness show is intended for general information purposes only. You can listen to previously broadcast shows online at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Join Casey for another edition of Shine On, the health and happiness show next Sunday morning, right here on 100.7 WHUD.